We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome to our Wednesday evening presentation. We are going to discuss once again the topic of Christ the King in preparation for the great feast of Christ the King the last Sunday of October, which is actually this coming Sunday, October 25th. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. The immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. Good Saint Joseph, pray for us. And Saint Hilarion and Saint Ursula and companions, Pray for us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. One of the most famous buildings in the city of Rome is called the Pantheon. It has a long history. In its origins, the Pantheon was built by pagans as a temple consecrated to all the various gods throughout the entire Roman Empire. In fact, that is why it was given the Greek name Pantheon which literally means all gods. This round structure with its famous concrete dome with a hole in the middle was very inclusive since no major god was left out. This allowed people from all walks of life to offer incense or a sacrifice to their favorite god without anyone insisting there was only one true God and one true religion. But with the rise of Christianity, i.e. Catholicism, things began to change quite quickly. The church militant you see fights for the rights of the true God and excludes any other claimant from the temple of worship. Religious pluralism and Catholicism cannot ultimately coexist. Pagan public worship was prohibited in Rome by the middle of the fourth century AD. Since only Catholics have true religious liberty to worship the true God in the way that he has commanded. The Pantheon and various other pagan temples were closed and boarded up by order of the Christian emperor in consultation with the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. But eventually, Many of these abandoned buildings, including the Pantheon, were consecrated as Catholic churches. The emperor, history tells us, gave the Pantheon over to the Pope for the purpose of worshiping the true God who admits no rivals. One historian wrote, quote, the old temple called the Pantheon after the pagan filth was removed 
was made into a church in honor of the Holy Virgin Mary of all the martyrs, so that the commemoration of the saints would take place, unquote. The same historian then adds that the ancient pagans were not worshiping gods in the pantheon, but rather the demons behind those false gods. Remember that the apostle St. Paul had clearly taught in the inerrant scriptures that the gods of the heathens are literally devils. Christ had conquered Rome and his church militants had turned the pantheon into the church of Santa Maria ad Matres, Saint Mary of the Martyrs. Niches, once filled with idols, were replaced with devotional statues in honor of Saints Agnes, Agatha, Cecilia, Saints Lawrence, Sebastian, Marshallinus, all the martyrs who witnessed to the true God and the true faith with their blood. While the pagan filth was removed, cartloads of martyrs' relics were brought into the newly consecrated church. In the same city of Rome, right in St. Peter's Square, you will find a giant pagan obelisk. But this needle-shaped stone structure has a cross firmly implanted at the top. And furthermore, at the base of this monument, there is an engraving which reads, Christus vincit, Christus regnat, Christus imperat. Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ commands. In a sense, the pagan obelisk is like the golden calf from the Old Testament, representing idolatry, rebellion against God's order, false liberty or licentiousness, sensuality, falsehood, and corruption. But this beast is contained, restrained, and yes, conquered by Christ the King, whose cross impales it and his mystical body, the church militant, which controls it. The devil and his demons had been put on a leash. The pantheon as a pagan temple was closed and the shadow of the cross covered Rome and eventually all of Christendom. Satan would have to look to other shores to open up a new pantheon. In our nation's capital, there is a giant obelisk that stands more than 150 feet high. But this pagan Egyptian and Masonic symbol, known as the Washington Monument, is missing one important feature. Namely, there is no cross on the top. That is, there is nothing to restrain, contain, and conquer the golden calf, since Christ's kingship is not recognized by that liberal republic along the Potomac. Although this nation was founded and established by men of Christian and European ancestry, it was never part of Christendom or the Christian order of things. It was here then that the new pantheon would be built that would influence the whole world and even the membership of the church militant with the idol of religious liberty. The leading men of the American experiment wished to establish a new way to organize society where the government would have no duties to the true God, 
no responsibilities to the true faith. The very document by which the Republic was founded would in no way establish church, nor favor or recognize any religion, nor demand any religious tests for the holding of public office. Authority seemingly came from below, we the people, as opposed to being from above. And the popular will trumped the divine will. And of course, it goes without saying, the church and the state would be divorced in this new order. And furthermore, in this newly created nation, no man would be molested for his religious opinions, but could freely communicate them in speech, writing, and printing, even if they were offensive to Almighty God. And with the government being totally indifferent, religiously indifferent towards the question of religion, a virtual pantheon would be built that would allow incense to be offered at any altar people wished as long as public order was preserved. In this new order, this new world, the key virtues were tolerance, mutual acceptance, coexisting, and finding that central natural point that we all can agree on. Well, a liberal or a Mason, a Freemason, might feel quite at home in this pantheon, but a Roman Catholic, a soldier for Christ and the church militant can never feel comfortable in such an environment. And that is why the true church has martyrs. Only the Catholic church has martyrs, filled with supernatural and loving fortitude as opposed to godless tolerance. Christian witnesses who allow violence to be done to themselves as they knock down the idols of the pantheon and cut down sacred groves, all in an effort to plant the cross of Christ in men's hearts and in men's societies. The same God that created individual men also created societies and governments. Government and society is a creature, not a creator, a creature. And just like man is bound to acknowledge the true God and the true faith, so it is with societies made up of men. Pope Leo XIII of holy memory taught the following regarding the duties of the state. Quote, civil society must, note the adverb, must acknowledge God as its founder and parent and must obey and reverence his power and authority. Pope Leo XIII then ends by saying, justice therefore forbids and reason itself forbids the state to be godless or to treat various religions alike with equal rights and privileges. Hence, religious indifferentism. It doesn't really matter what religion you are. Well, with no cross to restrain and conquer it, the filth of this new pantheon corrupted many members of the church militant, causing them to become sterile and even impotent in regards to the faith. The American way 
Americanism began to be promoted as the best way for the church to thrive in this new order, this novus ordo seclorum. A free church in a free state competing in a market of ideas and religions. A free church that is not supposedly impeded by government and a free state that doesn't confess any religion at all. This is the best way, we were told. Although most everything else would be regulated in order to prevent fraud and damages. I mean, we have regulations for everything in this country. Religion would largely be unregulated. Americanism would also infect many Catholics in the United States with the watering down of the faith, with the false ecumenical spirit in order to encourage dialogue within the pantheon. Some Catholics even supported religious diversity and pluralism, rejoicing that people of different so-called faiths could peaceably live together. Many adherents to this heresy would favor natural means over supernatural means, and they would favor the active life over the prayerful contemplative life, as well as choosing the unrestrained liberties of conscience, speech, and press before gospel freedom founded on truth and doing the morally right thing. It all began with the first Bishop of Baltimore, namely Bishop John Carroll. The Episcopal seal for Bishop Carroll tells a lot. It shows the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child along with stars around her head. But this seal has come to be known as the Americanist Madonna. For instead of 12 stars surrounding her sacred head, representing the 12 apostles as seen in the book of Revelation, we see rather 13 stars representing the original colonies that made up the early United States. The Catholic Church of the Carols said one commentator was a Native American church, like a national church, made up of clerics and laity who were very respectable members of the American establishment. In other words, don't make too many waves. We would be more American than Catholic. Cardinal Gibbons, a later Archbishop of Baltimore, and another Americanist, boasted that the catechism he wrote contained no word that would offend our Protestant brethren in the American pantheon. Furthermore, this same cardinal said that if he did have the power to change the United States Constitution, which makes no mention of Almighty God as a source of authority, doesn't mention Christ the King, doesn't mention his kingdom, if he had the power to change the U.S. Constitution, he would not, quote, expunge or alter a single paragraph, sentence, or word. For the document 
and the Catholic religion make for a perfect fit. And finally, another Americanist bishop of the 18th century stated in a very Kennedy-esque sort of way that he would never allow the Pope the smallest interference in the American voting process. In the late 19th century, Americanism was condemned by Pope Leo XIII of holy memory. But as decades have passed, it seems the American way of religion, pantheon and all, has gained many adherents. Ecumenism has become a virtual dogma throughout the church. Inter-religious dialogue is seen as irrevocable. Assisi prayer days make the pantheon incarnate with the leaders of various world religions, including the Pope, all on the same level. The church Milton has become the church tolerant with Christ the King being demoted to just another inspired religious founder. But this is not truly Catholic. Remember that phrase engraved in the obelisk in St. Peter's Square that has a cross on top. That phrase at the base of that obelisk reads, Christus vincit, Christus regnat, Christus imperat. Christ conquers. He is a conqueror with an unending reign where he commands the nations to follow his plan. His kingdom, the Catholic Church, has an absolute monopoly on all saving truth and saving grace. No religion outside of Catholicism can save anyone. The martyrs of old believed this truth, and this helped them to convert the pagans. The members of the Church Milton cannot ultimately accept the Pantheon model. To close, I would like to quote a good archbishop in the history of the United States, namely John Hughes of New York. He once said the following, and perhaps we can seek to live this quotation evermore. Archbishop Hughes stated, quote, the goal of the Catholic Church is to convert all pagan nations and all Protestant nations. There is no secrecy in all this. It is the commission of God to his church. Everyone should know that we have for our mission to convert the world, including the inhabitants of the United States, the people of the cities, the people of the country, the officers of the Navy and the Marines, commanders of the army, the legislature, the Senate, the cabinet, the president, and all, unquote. So with that bit of an introduction, we're going to move on to, again, the discussion of Christ's kingship, but in particular, the notion uh, that has come to be very much embraced by many members of the church, the notion of religious indifferentism, or the notion even of a false understanding of religious liberty. So in order to help us do this, I think in a better way, I'm going to share with you a screen with an article or 
selections from an article by Michael Davies, God rest his soul. Remember, he was a wonderful prep school teacher in England who had a great devotion to the Latin mass and actually wrote extensively, although he you know, learned a lot about this through his own reading, he wrote a lot about the topic of religious liberty. So let's look through some of the statements made by Michael Davies, God rest his soul, he died a few years back. Remember, quas primas, that will be sort of seen, especially as coming Sunday, because Pope Pius XI of Holy Memory instituted the Feast of Christ the King with that document, Quas Primas, calling for the last Sunday in October to be the Feast of Christ the King. And remember, it was written in 1925, December 11th, 1925 to be exact, as the 1600th anniversary of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. The foundation of Christ's kingship is that he's literally consubstantial with his heavenly father, one and the same God. Therefore, by right, by nature, he is Lord and King, but he also purchased us at quite a price, his blood, therefore, he also has claim over us because he has saved us. The Pope, Pope Pius XI, and I'm repeating myself here a little bit from past classes, but what did he say was the cause of much of the heartache and the difficulties which this world experiences to this day? The Pope says the chief cause and difficulties under which mankind was laboring he explained, here's the quotation from Quas Primas. The manifold evils in the world today are due to the fact the majority of men have thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives. That our Lord and his holy law have no place in private life or in politics. And then the consequences, as long as individuals and states societies refuse to submit to the rule of the savior there will be no hope for lasting peace among nations men must look for the peace of christ in the kingdom of christ as i mentioned a couple of classes ago seeing the tomb of pius the 11th in rome in 2013 around his tomb an arch a frame which had engraved the words Pax Christi in Regno Christi, peace of Christ in the reign of Christ. Now, in affirming this fundamental truth, Pope Pius XII was not just referring to Catholic nations or even to so-called so Christian nations, but to all of mankind. I mean, Christ's empire does not stop with Catholic individuals. He's the creator of the universe, the word through whom the universe was made, all belongs to him. And so Leo XIII states, quote, the empire of Christ includes not just Catholic nations, not just baptized persons who have left the church, 
been led astray by error or those who are schismatics, but also those who are outside any notion of the Christian faith. So that truly the whole of mankind is subject to the power of Christ the King. All men, all individuals are subject. First and foremost, as I said earlier, because God is the creator of all. Christ the King is consubstantial with his heavenly Father. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Therefore, that sacred humanity that is united hypostatically to the second person, the Holy Trinity, that human nature has been elevated above all other things in creation. He must reign as Lord and King. There is no option. But also, he has purchased us at a price, right? We'll talk about that in a moment as well. We need to embrace this reality to find true tranquility and a certain happiness on this earth. And of course, we need to embrace this truth in order to get to heaven because only through Christ in the Catholic Church is there a proper orderly return to the God who made us. So it's not just about having a certain peace and happiness on earth, but it's having eternal happiness in heaven. This has got to be accepted by men. The peace of Christ in the reign of Christ. This is another quotation from our wonderful writer, Michael Davies. He asks, or rather states, when men repudiate this relationship, they don't want this creator-creature relationship where we have duties to worship the one true God. When men repudiate this relationship, disharmony, disorder take over. The disharmony and disorder of sin, the disharmony and disorder introduced for the first time by Lucifer, who was one of God's most magnificent creatures of all, who because of pride boasted non serviam. I will not serve. And what was Lucifer tested with to see if he would serve, if he would humble himself, even though he was such a high creature? He saw and viewed the sacred humanity of Christ, and he was told that this is your king. The sacred flesh, the precious blood, the most holy human soul, all united to the word. You must worship and be subject to this king and to his mother, who is a queen. And he said, no, non serviam. Second reason why Christ can claim us as his subjects and that he must be seen as our king is again, he is our redeemer, right? He acquired us. He acquired us by his blood. Therefore, he is truly deserving, justly claiming our allegiance to him. So, got a double chain of allegiance that we owe to Christ. By nature, he's God, and he spilled his blood for us. We owe him everything. Be subjects of this king. 
This is also an important point, which I think is always important to emphasize because the notion is this, right? That Christ the King is to be accepted. This is what those holding false positions would think is to be accepted by individual human hearts. It's sort of a personal choice of individual human hearts. And so having Christ acknowledged as King in your insides, the the state, society, this is considered something beyond expect, what, what is expected. That's not the teaching of the church. The state is a creature. Society is a creature, and therefore, society owes, like any creature individually, corporately, society owes public worship to the one true God and public subjection to the king. The church's teaching is that the state, and these are more quotations from Michael Davies, the state has an obligation to render public worship to God in accord with the liturgy of the true church, the Catholic church, what does God want? Did it, does everybody ever think about what, what God's will is? Is it God's will that all men come to Christ, his son, that all men join his kingdom, which is the Catholic church, and that all men, does he not desire them to come to heaven through Christ and the Catholic church, through this orderly, proper return to the God who made us? Yes, that's his will. This is God's will, that all men come to Christ in the church. The state does not, this is from Michael Davies using the teachings of Leo XIII in particular, the state does not have the right to remain neutral regarding religion. If I as an individual, let's say I was a pagan, unbaptized person, I'm supposed to seek the truth. Well, if I'm supposed to seek the truth, then wouldn't a group of men expect to also seek the truth? That a society which would also seek the truth? The state does not have the right to remain neutral regarding religion, much less to pursue a secular approach in its policies where it's laicist. Laicism reigns, not allowed. A secular approach is, by that very fact, an anti-God and an anti-Christ approach. Pope Leo XIII, another quotation from him, wonderful Pope of the late 19th century. He writes, every civilized community must have a ruling authority. And this authority, no less than society itself, has its source in nature and has consequently God for its author. Hence, it follows that all public power must proceed from God, for God alone is the true and supreme Lord of the world. All authority comes from God. All paternity, all fatherhood comes from God. This is what our entire hierarchical system with those in authority, granted authority by the good Lord, receive properly obedience from their subjects. 
I mean, why is it that we obey our parents when we're minors, younger, dependent upon them? They're not better than we are. They might be taller. They might be more experienced, but they're not better than we are in terms of their nature. So why are we obeying them? Why should I obey a police officer who decides to pull me over? Why should I obey a ruling of a judge? Why should I obey any public authority? Why should I obey a priest? He's not better than I am. Because God and his authority works through those instruments. When we obey our father, when we obey our mother, when we obey various individuals, including pastors and teachers in school, various other receivers of God's authority, we are obeying God. And that's why when authority asks us to sin, we can say no, because it's better to obey God than men. You're not acting properly. Everything without exception must be subject to God and must serve him so that whosoever holds the right to govern holds it from one soul and single source, namely God, the sovereign ruler of all. There is no power but from God. So this notion that power is from the folks below is an error. All authority comes from above. And because we have this false notion that all authority comes from below, from the people, how much real obedience is being practiced by most citizens today in our country? Seriously. Why do we obey various government officials? Is it because we're afraid that they might check into our tax situation or that we might get arrested? There's not as much virtue when you don't have this mindset where we are seeking to obey God, to keep the fourth commandment when we obey authority. The error then forth, therefore in the modern world, especially in the liberal republics of the West, including our country, is all power in will, the will of the people. We the people. Now granted, there is some consent notion to authority. I mean, obviously, if some king in France you know, wants to hand on the kingship to his son, but his son is an illegitimate child, not truly legitimized by a proper birth from his, so that from the queen, you know, people will object. So there is some notion of consent in regards to authority. If there was an election, the election was done properly, lawfully, you know, that's part of the consent that we give. But authority comes from God, not from the will of the people. Again, Leo XIII of Holy Memory, Immortali Dei, quote, in a society grounded upon such maxims, power comes from the will of the people, all government is nothing more or less than the will of the people. And the people being under the power of itself alone is alone its own ruler. Everybody's their own Pope. Everybody's their own King. 
the authority of God is passed over in silence, just as if there were no God. That's why you hear some of these Supreme Court justices being interviewed or go through their hearings. You know, they never mentioned Ten Commandments. They never mentioned the law from Mount Sinai. They don't mention the precepts of the natural law. They try to stay away from it. For them only, the laws that are the will of the people are respected. The authority of God is passed over in silence, just as if there were no God, or as if he cared nothing for human society, or as if men in their individual capacity are bound together in social relations owed nothing to God, or as if there would be a government of which the whole origin and power and authority did not reside in God himself. In short, the error where all power is in the will of the people is a disaster. No peace in such a society. Church and state should not be divorced because man has a soul as well as a body. Leo Thirteenth writes again, civil society must acknowledge God as its father and parent. I'm repeating myself here from the sermon that I gave to open this particular class. All must acknowledge God as its founder and parent, every society. Justice forbids there to be a godless state. Justice forbids the state to be godless or to adopt a line where all religions are put on the same level, where truth and error are put on the same level. He then ends by saying, since then, the profession of one religion is necessary in the state. That religion must be professed, which alone is true. And which can be recognized without difficulty, especially in Catholic states, because the marks of truth are, as it were, engraven upon it. One holy Catholic and apostolic. This is the church that Christ founded. Pope Pius X, St. Pius X, right? In an encyclical he wrote in 1906, he states, quote, that the state should be separated from the church is absolutely false and a pernicious thesis. Dangerous and false idea. For first, since it is based on the principle that religion should be of no concern for the state. Who cares about human souls? It does a grave injury to God, who is founder and conserver, the keeper of human society, no less than he is of individual men. He keeps me alive every breath I take, keeps me in existence, so he does with societies made up of individual men who come together in union. For which reason he should be worshipped, not just privately, but publicly. You know, the third commandment, keep holy the Lord's day. That is part of the natural law. Now, it's more specified by 
the church, obviously, but to worship God publicly, to acknowledge God publicly is part of the natural law. To give worship to the one who made you. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because it's sort of a controversial question and it's something which is not easily answered. But there was a document that came out during the Second Vatican Council on the topic of religious liberty. It was called Dignitatis Humanae. And of course, it's interesting that a topic on the notion of religious liberty and topic of sort of giving worship to the true God uh, is labeled the dignity of the human being, uh, human dignity, as opposed to maybe calling the document something which would refer to God, what he's owed, as opposed to making it so man-centered a document. Even more striking, this document, Dictatus Humanae, its omission of any obvious repeating or reiteration of the obligation of public authorities to recognize Catholicism as uniquely true. So it seems to sort of not discuss the duty of men in society to publicly acknowledge and to publicly worship the one true God. And this has been expressed, this sort of new way of looking at things, not necessarily focusing in on so much the duties that we owe to God, but recognizing human dignity and the human conscience so much that we tend to dismiss the notion that societies, villages, towns, states, countries, nations must acknowledge the one true God. This new way of thinking has been expressed in the new liturgy with the removal of prayers and hymns in modern texts that were not going along with the new party line. So the texts of the office, the divine office, the breviary for Christ the King, as well as texts from the actual mass of Christ the King have been altered in the Novus Ordo. And many things have been removed which speak about the state's duty to worship the one true God if it wishes to be a successful state. And of course, this leads to a problem because I think a lot of you know this phrase, right? Lex orandi, lex credendi. So if you start removing prayer liturgy type things or editing, erasing, excising certain prayers that we used to pray, that's going to affect potentially how we believe in certain topics. So if you take away the notion that societies must acknowledge the one true God in terms of prayer, 
then you're going to have that being taken away in terms of people's belief. Lex Arandi, the law of praying, is the law of believing, Lex Credendi. And of course, that has happened. We have seen this happen. The new mass, the new bravery. Okay, obviously Novus Ordo. And the new bravery, that is the special prayer book, the sort of largely the Psalter, other wonderful things in there as well, wonderful readings, wonderful antiphons, wonderful hymns. The new office can be deduced primarily, the true import, I should say, the new office can be deduced primarily from what has been removed from the preconciliar bravery. Preconciliar being before the Second Vatican Council, the preconciliar bravery. And a comparison of the two texts reveals the systematic removal or modification of complete prayers or individual phrases that are more in line, therefore, having been removed, these certain texts, they're more in line with Dignitatis Humani, the new way of looking at the question of society and human beings in regards to their mandate, the charge that we worship the one true God and submit ourselves to his rule, including states. Let's take a look at the liturgy. These are some of the lines that have been removed from the liturgy, the public worship that is offered on the Feast of Christ the King the last Sunday of October. Now, let's, let's, let's pause here for a second. Remember what Quas Primus was about. Quas Primus was about the establishment of a feast in order that nations and peoples may come to acknowledge Christ as their Lord and King and that they are truly subjects to him and they owe, owe allegiance to him. In order to get that ever more in the minds and hearts of believers and in the minds and hearts of people in various countries, to establish a liturgy, an office and a mass for Christ the King. That's the reason the document was written, to establish a liturgy that would help people accept this teaching that Christ is king. Now, in the new rite, the Novus Ordo, and I think a lot of you know this already, the Feast of Christ the King is no longer on the last Sunday of October, but rather has been switched to the very last Sunday of the year, just before Advent. So usually the last Sunday or close to the last Sunday of November. And you're saying, why did they do that? I mean, the document, Quas Primas, which established the feast, said clearly the last Sunday of October. But the last Sunday of the year in the Novus Ordo Rite. And I think this gives an impression, at least, that Christ's kingship is only truly fully present at the end of time, when Christ will come again. And so that in the meantime, 
he doesn't seem to be as desirous of being acknowledged as king by various nations and peoples. And I think this can be a very dangerous position to hold. Christ is king. So when you touch the liturgy, as Christ, the king liturgy was touched with things removed, various editings to bring it more in line with the new way of thinking, you're going to affect the faith. Lex orandi, lex credendi, right? So let's look at the some of the verses that have been removed from various hymns. This is a hymn from the Feast of Christ the King in the Old Rite for First Vespers, First Evening Prayer. The following verses have been omitted in the new translation or the new hymn that is present in the new breviary. So some of the things removed. This is called, the hymn is called Te Seculorum Principem. The wicked moms, the wicked, the wicked mob, mob screams out, we do, we don't want Christ as king. Like the Jews of old, we don't want this man to rule over us. Give us Barabbas, right? Hmm? But then we, however, are not to be like that. We're not like the Jews of old that chose Caesar over God. We have no king but Caesar, remember what they said. We're not like that, we're not supposed to be. So then the beautiful lines from this hymn, which have been removed in the new rite. May the rulers of the world publicly honor and extol thee. May teachers and judges reverence thee. All those in authority acknowledge and reverence the true God. May laws express thine order. Any law written by men, any law written by human legislators should express the order of God and the arts, the beautiful arts, architecture, music, paintings reflect God's beauty. May kings find renown in their submission as well as presidents, lawmakers, senators, judges, find renown in their submission and dedication to thee. Bring under thy gentle rule over rule over our country and our homes. Glory be to thee, Jesus supreme over all secular authorities. He is Lord and King over all realms, the eternal realm of heaven and the realm of earth. Remember, I've mentioned this a few times before, what is the main question of this modern age since the French Revolution? Will Christ, the King of heaven, be acknowledged as Christ, the King of earth? That's the question. Some other hymns. Another hymn that, again, has been altered, changed, edited for the new rite. The hymn, Eterna Imago Altissim. The following verses have, not surprisingly, been omitted completely from the new rite celebration of Christ the King liturgy. To thee, again, this is a hymn. To thee who by right claim rule over all men, we willingly submit ourselves. 
to be subject to thy laws means happiness for a state and its people. A lot of unhappy people in the United States, a lot of unhappy people in the Western world. Maybe they're unhappy because they're not acknowledging and our society is not acknowledging our king. Glory be to Jesus, supreme over all secular authorities, right? Again, it's repeated. Not just king over popes and priests and bishops, all right? He's king over all temporal rulers, too. He's not trying to take their crowns away from them, by the way. But all authority, including their authority to rule as a president or a prime minister, comes from God. Another hymn, very famous one. I think a lot of you probably have heard of this. Vexilla Regis, the banners of the king. Vexilla Regis. Again, look at some of these uh, things. This version of Vexilla Regis, the banners of the king, has been abolished completely. This version of it. So it still exists as a hymn, but this version of it has been completely abolished. Doesn't go in line with the new thinking, the new learning. Again, this is from Lod's morning prayer for Christ the King. Christ triumphantly unfurls his glorious banners everywhere. Come nations of the world and on bended knee, nations of the world, acclaim the King of Kings. How great is the happiness of a country that it rightly owes the rule of Christ and zealously carries out the commands God gave to men. It's the plighted word keeps marriage unbroken. You got divorce in this country from its very beginnings. Now, you know, Obergefell decision, the Supreme Court, two men getting married. We'll talk about that in a bit. But if you have Christ's word, the king's law, marriages remain united. The true sense of marriages, they are indissoluble unions. The children grew up with virtue intact. They're taught properly in schools. They're taught the Ten Commandments, how to behave, do good, avoid evil. They're not taught that in eight-year-old can determine his gender, which our, one of the people running for president said that an eight-year-old could decide to be reassigned. Are you kidding me? The craziness of a people that does not accept Christ's kingship. I forget the exact phrase, but before the gods would destroy a people, they first make them crazy. It's a curse. Before the gods destroy a nation, they first make it crazy. Homes where purity is found abound also in the other virtues of home life. There's so many good things that happen. Another thing that was changed, Archbishop Bugnini, the author or one of the main composers of the Novus Ordo, they changed the Good Friday prayer. Of course, they changed a lot of prayers, right? They changed the Good Friday prayer. The old version of the old Good Friday prayer, which is prayed here on Good Friday, 
Oremos, let us pray, dearly beloved, for the Holy Church of God, that our Lord, our God and Lord may be pleased to give it peace. Keep its unity and preserve it throughout the world, subjecting to it, the church, principalities and powers. The church would be acknowledged as a spiritual power that, like the soul of a human being, is above the body politic. The body has to be respected for its needs, but the soul is greater than the body. The state has to be respected for its position as taking care of the temporal realm, but it must acknowledge the church is superior to it. It doesn't receive its authority from the church, but it should acknowledge the church like a soul is higher, takes care of higher matters, getting men to heaven. And may he grant us while we live in peace and tranquility, grace to glorify God, the Father Almighty. So again, the notion of the church having subject to it principalities and powers. That prayer has been replaced, right? Let us pray, dear friends, the new rite of Good Friday liturgy. For the Holy Church of God throughout the world, that God, the Almighty Father, guided and gathered together so that we may worship in peace and tranquility. So no mention of secular authorities being subject. Okay. Anything else I want to sort of sort of bring about? Um, in terms of the notion of religious liberty or what we would call sort of freedom of conscience, it is an insane viewpoint in terms of how liberals would perceive this. Freedom of conscience. I can come to hold whatever thought or idea that I want, that I can follow any religion I want. I have freedom of conscience. I can pursue any morality that I want. This, it, it, it is insanity, total insanity. Now granted, we don't want to coerce and force people to follow the one true religion. But we also have to make sure that we do not promote their false views of religion or allow them to spread their false views of religion throughout a neighborhood, throughout a, a society. So let's take a look at religious liberty to end. Pope Leo XIII teaches, in the liberal sense, liberty of conscience is the right of an individual to think and believe whatever he wants, even in religion and morality, and to express his views publicly and to persuade others to adopt them using word of mouth, public press, or any other means. That's the liberal, liberalism view of liberty of conscience, freedom of conscience. 
I can believe whatever I want and I can speak whatever I want, even if it's erroneous. Continuing, he has the right to choose any religion or to have no religion at all. This people who are liberals claim is a natural right. Now, that document, Dictatus Humanae, is not that. It did not affirm that everyone has a natural right, a moral right, to believe in or propagate error. But it did uphold the traditional teaching in this respect. The Declaration affirmed not a moral liberty to behave in whatever way one wanted or to believe in whatever God one wanted, but rather saw it as a civil liberty, a civil protection given to that person. And so the question must be considered from a purely juridical standpoint. No one has a natural right from God to hold an untrue religion. Error has no rights, right? That's an obvious phrase we, we probably have heard before. Error has no rights. So no one has the right to do something wrong. So you don't have a right to steal somebody's stuff. You don't have a right to have an abortion, a direct abortion. You don't have a right to, um, to lie. You don't. And you don't have a right, therefore, to worship a false god. And you don't have a right to worship the true god in a false way. Because error has no rights. No one has a right to do something wrong. Those in error have no natural right to propagate their views, to spread their views through press, media, door-to-door -door campaigns. The propagation of error is certainly evil, but, and here is something that the church has allowed in many ways throughout the centuries, it could be tolerated in the interests of the common good to prevent a greater evil, namely civil unrest. Okay, so there was a lot there today regarding our topic of Christ the King, and hopefully we learned something today. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Amen. God bless.